So Hatch Showprint has a neon sign that they bought back in the 1940s with Acuff for governor money. Roy Acuff, known as the king of country music, ran for office back in 1948. It was his second time running, actually. This go was the real deal as his run four years earlier in 1944 was as a protest candidate. He was doing it to F with the system. Why? Well... First, I should tell you that Nashville Demystified is the show you are listening to, and I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a podcast, as I'm sure you're aware, (laughs) in which I get to know this city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Nashville Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video content production house with offices here in the city. If you need commercial video produced for your company or for your message or idea, etc., let Knack Factory know. It's what they do. Nashville Demystified is distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. All the shows are good. Go and listen to all the shows right now. I promise they're good, but definitely check out Band Splainer, in which music journalist Olivia Ladd teams up with a new guest host every episode to give you background on all those bands that you should probably know about but don't, and now you're embarrassed that you don't know anything about them because you're a little bit old like me. Give the show a listen. Olivia's great. She was one of our earliest guests, and she is she's a fantastic person, great writer, wonderful host. Oh, I should say, <laughs> before we get back to ACOF, that we're going to be talking about uh, ACOF's run for governor. And then we're talking with Mercy Bell, who is a fabulous entertainer and singer and musician, all around, you know, pop folk phenomenon. She is, uh, she's wonderful through and through. We had a great conversation, and you're going to hear that in the second part of the show. Okay, back to ACOF. Why did he run a protest campaign in 1944? Well, I feel so, (laughs) talk about beating around the bush, we're gonna get there, but I feel that this is especially relevant considering the term identity politics tends to get tossed around disparagingly when it's about people who are legitimately on the crap end of our political system, but not in every other scenario. You know, that ignores that all politics and political narratives trace back to identity somehow. And by saying, quote, identity politics, folks are usually diminishing the identities of those they associate with this term. Like how we think it's sort of, you know, par for the course when Hank Jr. is a belligerent loudmouth or when Kid Rock does his best Hank Jr. impression. That's country, right? But it still feels like an outlier when, say, Sturgill Simpson stands for a cause that we feel is traditionally left-wing, or when a queer Filipino-American artist and musician like Mercy Bell gets recognized on country charts, as she was this week, we're like, oh, where where does that fit in country? Because we, we think that there's a bit of a normal country narrative, quote-unquote normal country narrative, that us country lovers who don't fit into the perspectives of that narrative, you know, get a little uneasy about. So where where do those perspectives come from and where did that narrative come from? Well, it all goes back, not all of it, but a lot of it goes back, it turns out, to Acuff, again, the so-called king of country music, 
for those of you who don't know, uh, Royakov was just a phenomenal musician, singer, um, ran a publishing house, the most one of the earliest and most successful publishing houses in country music. Um, was a mainstay at the Opry forever, <laughs> just forever and ever. And in is is known, you know, the king of country music for good reason. And so a year before the protest run in 44, back in 1943, Acuff invited then governor Prentice Cooper to the Opry to, you know, to come be a guest. Or it was, it was not exactly to the Opry. It was to something, it was to an event Opry related. And Cooper, a Democrat back when Tennessee was a solidly blue state, dismissed the invitation in word, eventually got back to Acuff, that the dismissal came with some disparaging remarks about Acuff and country music overall. According to Cooper, Acuff's work with the Opry was responsible for making Nashville the hillbilly capital of the U.S. And that wasn't a great thing as far as Cooper was concerned. This played into the larger narrative that would take hold, particularly in the second part of the 20th century, that the left were, you know, more or less a fat intellectuals who were out of touch with how, quote, real people live and conservatives are, despite a number of policies that work against the best interests of working people. You know, they are they're real folks. And so with this throwaway comment from some asshole in charge, Acuff got got a little steamed and decided he was going to show him. And uh, ran the nineteen four ran in the nineteen forty four primaries to protest uh, to protest Cooper's bullshit. Four years later, though, he made a more serious run. There was no chance in hell he was going to win back in the nineteen forties. Uh, Tennessee was a strongly blue state, but he did very well in the Republican primary, getting eighty one percent of the vote. He drew people. He was a he was a celebrity. Um, his platform, according to the New York Times, was centered on the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. And he said that if that didn't work in the Capitol, he didn't want to be governor, despite being warmly received by many Tennesseans with whom his salt of the earth charm did resonate. He only received 33 percent of the vote. But uh, in people who've worked in politics, this this will stand out to you uh, and this will make a lot of sense. You know, the Republican Party, uh, from stuff that I've read, didn't necessarily care that he won the governorship. What was appealing was that a celebrity like Acuff could go around throughout the state and draw people on smaller ticket races. He, he had a down ticket effect, as it's called. So the idea that this celebrity would go throughout the state repping uh, this run for governor was appealing because it meant that maybe it would bring people out to vote in their local uh, local elections. The Republican Party at the time wasn't as good as actually like both parties are now when it came to mobilizing people to vote. Acuff was someone who could do that. Of his laws back in 1984, he said, I'm proud I wasn't elected because my life in the entertainment world has been prolonged and my life would have been much shorter if I had been governor. He also said, and I find this hilarious, the greatest thing the Democrats have ever done for me was to defeat me for governor of Tennessee, which I, I like. It shows a, a fantastic sense of humor. In its remembrance of Acuff on its 1992 passing, the Chicago Tribune wrote, Governor Cooper has long since been proven incorrect. Uh, what Acuff was doing was making Tennessee the hillbilly capital, not of the United States, but of the world. So take that, Governor Cooper. <laughs> 
So Roy Acuff was the king of country music in format, sure, but also by way of solidifying its dominant conservative narrative that Merle Haggard would both honor and poke fun at Noki from Skokie. Listen to Tyler Me and Co.'s episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones for the background on that one. And if you have not listened to that podcast, listen to it. It's the gold standard on Nashville podcast for sure, but on uh, country music storytelling, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, just stop listening to this. <laughs> Go listen to his podcast. Um, and it's also the narrative that would, that in my view, would uh, bring a feminist icon like Dolly Parton to distance herself from the word feminism. You know, that is rooted in this new Dolly podcast that the folks from Radio Lab have put out. Also worth going to listen to. But don't don't stop listening because of that podcast. Listen to that one after. I, I just want to make sure I'm not discouraging you from continuing to listen <laughs> more than I have to. You know, it would set the tone that would bring Nixon on to the Opry, a guest of Acuff later on, and that would, you know, bring country music to help facilitate and create the illusion that conservatism somehow is synonymous with the working class and with salt of the earth people. After all, by the time he ran for office, Acuff, formerly a literal snake oil salesman, he you know he was traveling around with a uh, medicine show. Uh, he was a performer, yes, but he was also the head of the most substantial music publishing operation in country music. Aesthetically, he was a man of the people, absolutely. But by the time he turned his response to Governor Cooper's snub into an actual bid for the governorship particularly the second time around, he was no longer a, quote, man to the people. You know, he he was in publishing and he was in the public eye for for nearly a decade to that point in the, in the context of the Opry. He was a celebrity. And while his publishing operation didn't make it big, big, big until 1950, I mean, he was still not necessarily <laughs> representative of how typical Tennesseans uh, live. And that helped this folksy man who was going around the state and running for governor as sort of a representative of the people's values didn't necessarily match up with the realities of how people in Tennessee uh, were at the time. But I mean, you know, what politician, for the most part, I mean, there are obviously some exceptions, but what politicians' life does. By the way, while I was looking all of this up, and this is just a super quick aside, but <laughs> while I was researching all this, I wanted to find the original Hat Show print poster because there are a couple of versions of it. I mean, I don't know. There's a smiling version and there's like a sullen-faced version. And I don't know if the smiling version is an edit that came out later after the campaign or if it was a re-edit. I'm not entirely sure and I should probably find out. But I wanted to see that poster that paid for the uh, uh, hat show print neon sign. <laughs> and so I was looking it up and I came across an entry for it in an online auction service with probably the greatest online auction description of all time. Uh, it's going to be hard to do this justice. I'll put this on the website so you can see it. But um, it's going to be hard to do justice because it's largely in caps and sort of arbitrarily alternates between a regular case and again, all caps, but here it goes. I'll do my best. Roy A. Cup for Governor Poster. This is not a reproduction. It is not a reprint. Roy's original signature as he wrote the year he was running at the bottom of the poster. See picture. 
getting ready to go to that Grand Ole Opry in the sky and I'm selling my possessions from the music industry I've treasured for years. This poster is 17 by 22. Please email me any questions you may have. I offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed and 100% truthful. Good luck. So, okay, uh, a couple of things. <laughs> First, this is a tremendously heavy reveal to know in your description of an item you're auctioning online. Second, I am one hundo calling, dying, getting ready to go to that Grand Ole Opry in the sky from here on out for the rest of my life. That's what I'm calling dying. It's settled. You were here for it. And really, sir, you're wishing me luck? That is very gracious, all things considered. Good luck to you on the other side. I hope that you sold the poster. By the way, how will this person guarantee satisfaction? Uh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I love, love, love this description. <laughs> love it. Um, yeah, just the, the whole vibe. Hey, I'm dying. By the way, uh, here are the poster dimensions is so something my father would say. <laughs> so I appreciate that as well. All right. That's it for the ACOF story. I mean, I love the idea that he had his feelings hurt and he ran as a protest candidate. And then four years later, he ran as an actual candidate and then was stoked that he lost because he could be a country star for decades and decades and decades and then help facilitate and continue to facilitate this uh this narrative that country music is essentially a staid and you know conservative art form like literally and figuratively conservative art form not necessarily my series of perspectives but still very good <laughs> All right. Well, I talked with Mercy Bell. Um, Mercy is just a really fabulous and fantastic person. She put out a record uh, in October, uh, self-titled. It is, um, it's great. I mean, it's, 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 we, we talk so much about the trappings of genre, which is something I really enjoy talking with artists about. And we talk a lot about, you know, all sorts of different trappings. <laughs> In this interview, we talk about her influences and what moves her, how she got to Nashville, why being in Nashville is interesting and important to her. You know, where where queerness fits into this whole perspective, because, you know, she's an openly queer artist and how that fits into genre classification, selling music and on and on. And, and it turns out we have a similar set of inspirations and interests musically uh, from the same time period. Uh, maybe mine's a little later because I anticipate or I, I imagine I'm a little bit older, but we, we it sounds like we were listening to the same things at the same time. So we talk about that. And we also talk at the very end about mental health. And after the fact, you know, uh, after the interview, I don't, you can't hear this because we had this conversation offline or outside of the recording you know mercy said well sorry sorry i went down that that uh mental health rabbit hole and i'm honestly so glad that we did i i want to do that with everyone i talk with here especially in music because this is a 
and you know this, uh, especially if you're a musician, but this is a hard career and hard industry to maintain any semblance of order on mental health. There's so many factors playing against creating some degree of mental stability. And we talk a bit about that. We talk about why it's important to check in on that and why it's important to be, you know, your, your true self, not, not because it's like this aspirational, uh, great thing to do, but because it's, it's, it's important for your health, even when there are many, many factors often seemingly counting against it. I'm glad we went there. So get ready for mercy. Before we do that, uh, this is so late in the podcast to encourage you to follow us on social media and, and subscribe and do all those things, but it's important. It's important for us to, to have listeners because then maybe people will support us and we can continue doing this thing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Mercy Bell. Once I was young in New York City The summer was hard Damn it was pretty And I wore a black dress To make myself right To cover the mess of myself Oh, and I came out with an album in October. Yes. In, October 18th. Yep. And that's not your first. You had an album before that. Yeah. I right? had one that I made right out of college when I lived in New York and that was like 2011. Right out of college is the wrong term because it's maybe three or four years after I graduated, but it was like, it was th- the first collection of songs. So I made that one in New York and that one was like almost 10 years ago. So, wow. yeah. So this is like 10 years worth of songs. Yeah. But that I, it's only 10 songs, but it's the ones that I like the most. So right, right, yeah. right. Totally. You, you, and so why did you end up in Nashville if you were in New York? Um, I was at the time I was dating a girl who's from Arkansas and she was up there in Brooklyn, and then she was like, can we move back to the South? And I've moved around so much in my life that I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I have I felt like, as a person, I had never fully unpacked from any place that I'd ever lived. So I was like, <laughs> why not move somewhere else, you know? Um, and so we kind of went to Arkansas for a little bit, which I like Arkansas. It just, I was like, I need I need like job opportunities. Mm. So, and then I was like, I was doing music. So I said, why not Nashville? And we came here and we really liked it. So, and I had had enough friends in New York being like, Nashville is the real deal. If you want to talk about music. I remember my friend, Christine Hoberg, who is an amazing musician who's up in Minnesota. She said, you know, and if, if you ever visit Nashville, they take it seriously there. Not that they don't take it seriously in New York, but they take it extra seriously here. So, what do they take seriously? Music. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. for sure. And yeah, how and how does that manifest? Like, what is the? Because I know exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, but like, what is what is different in the way that like music occupies here? I, I think the biggest thing is that it, people. Th- there 
are more musicians here, but the level of quality of music is just, it's so good here that you have to be extra, you have to work on yourself to be extra good, you know? And it was a little bit intimidating when I first met here, moved here. Because in New York, there's art of every kind. So there's like, you can be an artist in New York, but it's like, it's, I, when I'm back there, I say back home, but when I'm back in New York, I'm always like hanging out with my theater friends who do theater and the ones mm. who work in film and TV and the ones who work in like digital media and photography. So it's like, it's like a smorgasbord basically of like artistic mediums. Here, it's like everybody here is a musician Every, a lot of them are great musicians, so you have to, if you want to like get anywhere, you really have to work on your like craft all the time. Right, right, right. And it made me stop for a long time because I was very, I was overwhelmed and intimidated by it, and I kind of just got into like de- like surviving basically. Um, and it was a couple years ago, like three years ago, that I. It was after my mom died that I was like, I'm going to do this again. Like, I, I have nothing really. So I needed something. And so I kind of dusted stuff off and went back at it. Yeah. 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 There's not, I lost, I lost a, uh, my father about uh, 10 years ago. I'm sorry. And like, and I'm sorry as well. Because yeah. that is like, there's nothing for recalibration. Like, nope. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I was just, I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) You get hit by death and you're like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? You know, Mm. it was almost for me, the music thing was, um, I remember I played a show, like, I want to say it was like less than a month after my mom died. And it was like all my friends showed up and it was very cathartic for me. And I remember some of my like bandmates at the time were like why don't you and still some bandmates but the band has kind of fluctuated here and there like let's do this album because like they could tell I needed something you know so it was kind of been a three-year process of making it so it was really kind of for me kind of grief therapy more than anything yeah was and was your was your excuse me your mother familiar with what you were performing and 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 what music you were making she was like a huge reason to like I remember when I first started doing music like when I graduated college I got offered this job in Boston like off the bat like and all of the like the logical person in me was like I guess I'll go to Boston which is 45 miles from my house and like have this job and then part of me was like I want to move to New York and do music and my mom was like go to New York and do music Mm. which is like very like she always supported my music all the time like like she was the person who who and my parents are like this but they always promote art over everything even if it's not logical like Mm -hmm. they're always like you should do some art because they're they're very I grew up in a very artistic house so there was always art of some form going on and so it kind of threw me when I went out into like the real world and noticed that like a lot of people don't do that, you know, and so I was like, Oh, okay. Got it. Um, so yeah, it would, it would definitely have been what she wanted. I mean, she didn't even tell me that she was dying at the end cause she didn't want me to like give up. She didn't want me to like move back and not do music. Yeah. So, um, like that's the level of what she, be- like how much she believed in art, you know? So and creativity and following your dreams and stuff like that. So, 
Yeah. What's your mom's? What was your mom's name? Kathleen. Oh, Kathleen. Yeah, Kathleen. Kathleen yeah. sounds like a rad lady. She was a pretty rad lady. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You, and so, so the, making this record was, you say grief therapy, mm-hmm. and it was a culmination of of a, a lot of um, um, you know sort of like work and introspection because mm-hmm. you said it's like ten of your favorite songs from ten years. Yep. Um, you, and you know you're getting you're getting a, a recognition and acknowledgement. Um, can we talk about genre? Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> I just had lunch with one of my former bandmates today, and I, my friend, and we were talking about genre today. Yeah, <laughs> what Vietnamese is, food. Yeah. What is well, totally in the combination <laughs> of cultures that were happening while yeah. you were talking about your genre eating Vietnamese <laughs> food in Nashville? Um, <laughs> what what is where do you land in, is it important that you land anywhere? I have a hard time with this, not uh, in like a ego way, but in like a ADHD way. Uh, I learned songwriting literally from, I'm going to say Patty Griffin. Are you familiar with her oh, of course, music? Yeah. Patty Griffin. I love Sufjan Stevens also. And then um, Max Martin, the you know top 40 pop songwriter. Right I just am a big fan of like, of folk lyrics mm-hmm. you know or as i want to say it's woody guthrie but i might be wrong three chords in the truth sure and like i i am a very like sh- I, I studied short stories and poetry and stuff where you're supposed to you can only get a little bit done you got you can only you only have a little space to get a lot done so you can't just like babble you know mm. as i may bab- be babbling now <laughs> but so that kind of falls into a folk category like stripped down folk songwriting like Joni Mitchell like um uh who else is super good at Jenny Lewis does it really well Mm. um Johnny Cash did it really well like a lot of the great folk greats um but folk kind of is like if you say that to people right now they kind of their eyes glaze over and they're like what does it mean like are you dancing around a maypole like what does it mean (laughs) for me from where I come from it's like it's like it's like brutal so- songwriting, mm-hmm. you know. It's like Joni Mitchell was huge for me, also. Like, uh, it just like listen to her lyrics. Like she's just bearing it out, and um, so I am really at the base, like folk and pop. That's what I am, but that doesn't really exist. So Americana kind of the term Americana showed up, and it seemed to be kind of like. It works, I guess. Uh, but but I mean, I really started to gravitate towards the term alt-country sure. because so many of my favorite current bands, like you Google them and they pop up as an alt-country, like the new Pornographers and Rilo Kiley and Jenny Lewis. And like um, like I've just talked about them a lot today already. I had another interview earlier. So it's just <laughs> like, so like that pops up. Um, so I don't know, like... I think I am a folk pop artist, but that's going to make people be like, what What are you talking about? Sure. So, I mean, I will gladly... I was saying earlier that it's kind of like dis, like trying to define your sexuality. It's like, well, what are you, a lesbian, bisexual, pansexual? What? I was like, I mean, I'm not straight. So. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, was, I remember talking to my friend, my friend Shane about, about uh, uh, queerness, and, and Shane is trans, and we were talking about... You know, like like being, I mean, being straight is such a specific uh, uh, box, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then being trans is not because mm-hmm. there are so many different ways that that can happen. And Shane was trying to we were we were 
trying to come up with like a better definition, you know, than just like straight and and not, and then everything else. And I was like, you know, I was like, it's like, it's like you're in a, you know, you're, you're sort of like out somewhere, right. You're out like on the land. Right. And there's either like, you can go from point A to point B and that is straight. Mm -hmm. And then there's literally every other possibility. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And and it's always (laughs) weird to me that anyone would want to rigidly define. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it's only, it's only from here to there, but then there's, you know, there's like trees and there's, you know, there's plants and there's a river and there's all this stuff. And similar as exactly as you just said, it seems as difficult to adhere, relig- not religiously, but ardently to a genre. Yeah. And I, I also like, uh, and I love that analogy. It's like, you have all these possibilities on ways you GPS, you can go other ways. It's like, yeah. Um, yeah. And so for me, it's like, I don't like, I don't get myself into like a tizzy about it, but it's like, like somebody asked me the other day, what are you like? And this was actually before I was compared to her, but I was like, that's like Linda Ronstadt country. Mm. And like, I think he the guy who asked me was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Because it's like, that's what it, that's the closest thing that I can think of. And I love her. And she's a huge idol of mine. And also she kind of permeated genres a lot. Like she learned, taught herself how to sing opera at one point. So, right. um, but I, yeah, I would say it's full. It's like, I write really super, folksy well, I, I write like real things that happen to me and I am interested in that so that's why I write those like lyrics that I do and then but I'm not going to write it unless I can do it to like a melody that I think is very catchy to myself which comes from my like pop obsession so right <laughs> yeah it's 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 fascinating it's like my my immediate social circles are increasingly they're in they come from a background of bluegrass. Mm, yes. And then I've never seen more people have identity crises than people who were steeped in bluegrass because mm-hmm. bluegrass probably of all genre mm-hmm. in the past 100 years in the United States is the most um, literally conservative genre. Like meaning that it's the, it's a genre that has tenants. If you step outside of the tenants, it's You're pro- taken away from it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And like things like, you know, jazz, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, the other, on the other side, great American creation. Yeah. Um, um, it revels in, in improvisation. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting. It's always interesting to me to see where people land with genre, especially in, especially in genre that has any sort of crossover into country, yeah. which itself is another, I mean, it, it certainly is not, um, it's certainly not an adherent to its own form because the form has changed over time, but it's certainly an adherent to its own aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know? You know, um, I forgot. It's like my favorite band of all time are the Dixie Chicks. Oh, yeah. I, they're my favorite, and yeah. they kind of went the opposite direction, obviously. They went, they did a whole, yeah, they turned around. But I remember being, like, loving them as, like, a teenager with their, like, hits. And they were so, they transcended, like, they were writing, they were writing pop-level country songs like songs that were so catchy and so transcendent that it was and if not writing they were like recording them at least and picking the right songwriters but when they came out with their home album which is like my favorite album ever and it's the thing that's (laughs) like it taught it introduced me to patty griffin Mm. 
it like it introduced me to like how to protest something like war through because I had grown up hearing the Vietnam protest songs but it didn't it wasn't there was no war and then all of a sudden Iraq happened and then traveling soldier came out and I remember feeling that moment of being like oh that's how you do it Mm -hmm. because they're singing about in traveling soldier they're singing about Vietnam but it's about Iraq and so like home changed my life and um like it was everything actually when I was making this album I remember recording one song and um do you know Larissa Maestro Mm -hmm. okay so she did all the string arrangements on this album and Mm she is oh god she's a genius and Larissa I love you and just like I'm gonna gush about you till the end of time but um (laughs) she at one point I was like trying to explain one song and she says girl don't lie this has Dixie Chicks written all over it and I was like you're right you're so right and I always forget to include them in things because to me it's so obvious that it's like they're my favorite band but like they for me are my favorite gender like gender bending (laughs) genre bending (laughs) group because they kind of did a backwards they went into this like folk album i know people say when home came out it was a bluegrass album but i was like that's like to me quintessential folk music like top of the world has like some of my favorite lyrics of all time and it's like patty griffin just like slaying you in the heart so that i don't i'm still gonna ramble on about this but it's my dixie chicks ramble right there (laughs) and like what is it like i guess bringing it back to nashville like what's it like coming to a place I mean, the thing that I'm struck by is all these, all these, these people and artists and phenomena that I grew up with that I didn't even think were had any impact on my ideas or taste or whatever. I'm realizing they did because when I when I see and feel them in the city, mm-hmm. um, I'm like, oh my god, yeah. you know, what's it like coming here as someone who you know clearly has a reverent attitude towards towards music and, and the culture surrounding that. Um, it's been really, um, it's kind of humbling because it's, you realize how much, A, how much work there that goes into it, but also how much like people don't actually rush outside of the country. Um, they don't realize how much comes comes out of Nashville like I'm listening to that Dolly Parton podcast right now that Radiolab is doing and I'm like oh my gosh like they're just talking about Dolly just putzing around Nashville and I'm like oh okay and you do realize it um and especially me working on Music Row right now like we have our tendrils are just like out across the country and people the funny thing is like when I when I go out of town and I'm touring like I'll say oh, I'm from Nashville right now, you know? Um, and people have this like reverence in their eyes of like, oh, Nashville. And I didn't get the same thing when I said, oh, I'm from New York. <laughs> right, 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 right. I love New York, but it's like, people have this reverence for Nashville that's, I mean, it's it's kind of incredible actually. Well, I'm from New York means a million different things. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm from Nashville means like, Oh, they have, they have this reverence in their eyes, yeah. Right. So like even last night, my... I was playing a show and my third grade choir teacher, like my first choir teacher came from San Diego to see the show. Hmm. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you guys, you came all the way. And they're like, we've been wanting to come to Nashville for 10 years. This was like the moment to come. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like it's a thing for people. 
and it's justifiable. Like it's, it's great. I think that we just get, I get a little bit, um, cynical is the wrong word, but like I get used to it. You just yeah. kind of get, uh, you get accustomed to whatever the word is. It's, uh, you acclimate, acclimate. Yeah. Right. Having a brain fart. Yeah. No, no. I'm f- I mean, I, and I feel, I feel like I constantly on some level have to check myself or, or, you know, acknowledge that goodness because mm-hmm. if you don't, you sort of, you let it pass by you. Yeah, and I was like, I'm like, I'm booking right now. So by the time this comes out, I'll probably have those tour dates announced, but I always forget how close we are to so much. And it's such like a logical reason for Nashville to be music city. Cause you're like four to six hours from everything, every place that you need to go play, you know? So it's um, like, that's another thing. It's a moment where I'm just like, ah, oh, Good job, Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> My understanding, I mean, uh, you know, Nashville, Nashville got its reputation as Music City because I, I believe because of black recording artists in the in the 30s and 40s. But I think, as an as an industry town, it was because its proximity to 80 percent of the population by way of shipping. That's so is, interesting. Is the reason? Um, and I, if I'm wrong. Eric Voles told me that. Okay. And I want people to know <laughs> <laughs> that Eric is the reason. But he seems to know some things. So, yeah, I think it's because of that. Exactly like you say, it's the proximity to, to everything around. Yeah, and it's still another. super, like, it's, like, useful. I'm, you know, it happens, like, I'm in the midst of it as we speak. Well, not as we speak, but, yeah, today, lots of booking things. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is that? How is that process? Um, I learn more and more every day, even though I work at a booking agency. But it's like the industry is so giant and has so many different like cubby holes. And it's like me as an independent artist, it's like a different monster to book yourself than like the agency I work for, which is booking like established country artists. Mm-hmm. Um, but like certain things you understand, like how to read in advance and like, you know, what promoters and people book and venues want to see in like the first paragraph, you know what I mean? Of your email. Um, so it's, I'm learning more and more every day. Yeah. Now you're, you're a person who identifies sort of on the front end of like bio as queer. Mm-hmm. What does like, in in all of your hyphenates, mm-hmm. countries also in there. Yeah, it is in there. It's absolutely in there. And so, like, what is that? I mean, it, to me, it's shocking that you know, like, ten years ago, this would be a much different conversation. Yeah. Um, to me, it's shocking that there is sort of the potential for the over, overlap and coexistence. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about like what that means to you to be someone who is performing a bit in a country space and someone who who not just identifies as queer, but is like that is part of your presentation? Yeah. Um, so I think I'm lucky in that I've never had any like. Uh, aspirations or aspirations the wrong word I've never had like I've always known that it would not fly with the country establishment Mm. I also did not grow up in the country and like that the term country being slapped on me is I think the fact that I use things like acoustic guitar finger picking and mandolins in my music and people don't know how to place that they're like oh what is that we're gonna call it country you know what I mean and Mm. I and I talk in kind of like a three chords in the truth way. It's like, I never adopted that moniker for myself. It just started getting placed on me because Mm. of the kinds of instruments I use, I think, and the way that I have kind of a 
there is a kind of way that I write lyrics that is not pop because pop can be very vague. And it's, I think it's closest to like the folk and uh, country world where as much as we want to, you want to talk about pop country or bro country or whatever, they're very specific and conversational in their lyrics. Mm. So it's like, I, so like I, I've just been, people tell me that I'm country and I'm like, I grew up in the city, but I did grow up all around the country and like I use these like folksy instruments. Um, it's funny. So it's like, I never like wanted to be like country, you know, it's literally <laughs> been like slapped on me because of how I write music. Sure. Um, and people don't know what to do. They don't know what folk music is. I don't think it like you say folk and people are like, so it's the nearest thing they go to is country. But also, um, I never had any like, uh, delusions that you know they're I'm gonna be the next Taylor Swift or something you know what I mean mm-hmm. I've so that gives me liberty to just be myself so I'm just like I'm queer I'm Filipino I write music that sounds like a thing that you think is country so we're gonna go with that and um and I have learned through doing this long enough if people are just saying it to just like just like if it's not killing you and it's not completely inaccurate just like let them go with it you know it's it's gonna it'll it'll help the the press releases sell a little (laughs) bit more so somebody told me that recently there's like you have all these like great monikers that'll catch people's eyes i was like i'll use it i don't care yeah i'm just it'll it'll help you chart too yeah yeah i'm just like it's fine it's it's not not true that's for sure like so that's what but i do say i try to be like alt country because it's like you have people like Brandy Carlisle and Jenny Lewis and, you know, Dixie Chicks Home. The new pornographers are technically considered in their Nico case, you know, like, mm. so it's, um, but I'm not going to like yell at people if they're like, oh, you're country. I was like, that's whatever. What, what do you want me to be? I'll be whatever you want me to be. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing that happens to genre over time mm-hmm. is that, is that, um, things get assigned to it because people don't know where to put it. Yeah. And then the genre expands. It's like a drawer, your junk drawer. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. It's like you use a banjo once and they're, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like I, I fell in love with a banjo thanks to Sufjan Stevens. So it's like, you know, he's another one of my favorites. What appealed uh, to you about him when you were younger? Um, he's an incredible lyricist. And I, I'm one of those weirdos that loves lyrics. I love good lyrics, and I think it comes from being from a family of writers. My parents are were like writers. My dad is a business professor now, but I grew up like the biggest insult my parents could levy at you was, oh, they're a bad writer. Mm. And I was like, ugh, yeah. So it's like I was always drawn to really like good short story writing, good lyrics. I love... I love it. I just love it when somebody can get something across in like two sentences. And so I loved Sufjan and his lyrics at first. And then I realized that how he like uses every instrument on the planet basically. And I was at the point at that point where I was just like, I was around a lot of instruments just by virtue of being 23 in New York city. Everybody has like a room full of instruments. So I would write things on different instruments even though I'm mainly just a singer and a guitar player Mm -hmm. but like I would tinker around on a banjo or tinker around on a mandolin and tinker around with what an electric guitar like a keyboard or whatever and so I really appreciated it when people did things that were different sounding and also shout out to my dad I grew up in my first music lessons were like classical music oriented so you always learn like the elements of an orchestra Mm -hmm. 
And so I was always very bored by typical rock and roll instruments, like no offense to everybody, but it's like boring to me. Like I would rather hear like an oboe solo. <laughs> I really would. Like yeah. I remember my dad, like when I was five, let, let me, letting me listen to Peter and the Wolf. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. It was like every instrument is different and each one, each element of an orchestra, like lends something to this and that and it, like this is the dynamics that it lends so I don't know I just think I get bored by by writing with just the typical rock thing um quote well, that's, unquote that's what stood out I remember like I grew up with uh punk and metal and then when I heard him when I heard seven seven swans mm-hmm. uh, seven swans right mm-hmm. when I heard I mean when I heard that like I you know, there was a lot of sound on there. I didn't know where it came from. Yeah. And I felt that same way about, and I feel like it was, this is sort of a natural transition for like punk and metal kids, but I felt that way about Bright Eyes too. Is yes. That I was like, yes. I was like, where, like, how are they making this sound? Yep. You know, yep. and they, those are probably the first records that I listened to yeah, with like great musicianship. such a good lyricist also. Like also Connor Oberst is an incredible lyricist and just a great like a poison oak still to this day, like mm. will make me ball. Mm-hmm. Just like, I don't care. It's like, don't play that song when I'm driving. Cause it's like, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to survive. The like, drive. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Anais Mitchell also, I know I'm going down like this deep folk thing, but Anais Mitchell is also like a, one of my favorite like songwriters. And she, for years, I don't think got enough recognition, but she just like has a Tony Award winning musical now, which was a right. total crazy flex. But I was like, girl, I have loved you since the beginning. And so like, that's the world that I come from. But it, I think it had a moment, a, like a blip moment. And then it, like in like the late 2000s where it was like kind of really cool. And then it kind of, I don't know what happened musically. I went, um, I was coming out of the closet, so I kind of lost track of the music world. Um, But yeah, that, like, I could talk about that stuff all day. Regina Spector is a huge one for me. Huge. Uh, I saw her at the greatest, smallest rooms, and she was just Uh, the best. I can't, like, to me, Samson is like, I um, sometimes when I'm writing lyrics, I'm like, can I write something? that gets enough across as Samson does mm. in like the smallest amount of time. So apologies to everybody who's like, who's Regina Spector? Oh, well, like, <laughs> no, fuck you if you don't know. And stop everything and yeah. go and find out who Regina Spector I know, is. I know, huge for me. So huge. Oh, like, that shit, yeah, I saw, I saw her with like Amanda Palmer and of Montreal in the ugh. same co- collection of places and yeah. spots. And I was just like, oh, like this is... It's the golden era. All this is possible. Great. Yeah, oh, I can't even. If you, oh, if you want to have have a good time there's a video of her doing a bunch of like a collection of songs with like um some symphony i think it's a national symphony mm. or something but like i just was i like stayed up till 4 a.m watching them just bawling in my bedroom recently so um, but yeah they're huge for me and i think it's just because they like create soundscapes with all these instruments and their lyrics and really good melodies like that's the thing so it's very Oh, they, I love them. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's, um, you know, with, with this record out, like what does that mean for you? Like you get a record out, mm-hmm. right. And you've, <laughs> it seems like it's, it's out and now people know about it. Yeah. And obviously you have to do all the things around it. Yeah. But like, what is it like to have it out of you? Uh, I'm really proud of it. I'm, this is the first time in my life that, I've made music 
and I've recorded it and it's exactly how it sounded in my brain, hmm. which has never happened before, not because of the talent of other people working on it, but because I didn't know. I think Ira Glass talks about, um, he talks about how you have, when you're starting out, you're beginning, you have this idea, you have this like level of taste and you're trying to get it done and you just keep doing it and you keep failing and it doesn't match your expectations and it's very frustrating, but you just have to keep doing it. I'm paraphrasing his speech really badly, but I took that to heart and I just like kept going at it and I messed up so many times and it's so expensive to mess up <laughs> recordings and it wasn't the other people's fault. It was like, I, did, I just had to make that mistake. I just had to keep making it. And this is the first time uh, that it's like, and my two co-producers on this uh, are my bandmate, Abby Hairston, who has been my bandmate forever and my friend Trace Faulkner and like together, like we got this out of me over like three years and I listened to it and every song is exactly how I sounded in my brain, which is wild. Like, so I'm just very proud. Like if I die and this is the, the last time I do music right now, it's like my grandkids or grand nieces and nephews or whatever can look back on this. Like that's for me, it's like I've left my art. So there. Yeah. yeah and it's like, I'm happy about that. Like, I'm, I, it was how I got through my mom dying and like a huge breakup and my grandma dying and my cat dying. And it's like, uh, it was all happened in like a year and it was, it's very, it became my journal kind of. So like, I'm just really proud of it. Like I'm just, and then we got my friend Tyler Varvel to like help design the album cover and it's beautiful and it's just like I love it like I'm just gonna I'm gonna be a very proud old bohemian lady in a loft somewhere in Manhattan being like this is my album from 2019 <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it looks I mean that's it yeah. looks great and that's the that's the interesting thing too about this place is that like I think for a long I mean for a long time records that you would call you know, that you would call folk or, you know, folk pop, whatever. Yeah. We can just call it alt country or country, whatever yeah, you want to call it. <laughs> for whatever, whatever's happening. Yeah. Um, um, there, you know, the aesthetic reality didn't necessarily match the, like the, the, what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like you've done a really great job of sort of matching those two things. Like you have something, you have a, you, um, have this like look that aligns with what you have put out. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like I, we kind of were going for that and I was just shout out to Tyler. He's a genius, like a visual genius. He's a hairstylist, but he also just gets the optics. I've been watching mm. a lot of succession. Can you tell? It's sure. like the optics. <laughs> and, and he was like, just trust me. And I was like, okay, I do. I actually trust you. You have, uh, you're the only stylist who hasn't messed up my hair ever. So I trust <laughs> you. And, uh, Kate Brady photographed it and she works with a lot of musicians and she's a phenomenal photographer. She's incredible. Yeah. So uh, we had the most fun photo shoot also. And it just, it was me, you know, and it kind of represents everything. It's like, I've grown up on both coasts. Like my, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. It's like, I, I remember being a kid in San Diego and my grandfather, who was my babysitter growing up was from Georgia. He was a Southerner. And when he would, he, uh, had undiagnosed, well, he was untreated bipolar disorder. So when he would have manic episodes, like he would just start like 
talking about like the Civil War and like Yankees and stuff like that, like cla- classic Southern stuff. Mm. So I'm just like this little Filipino, like half white, half Filipino kid, well, quarter Filipino, but whatever. Um, and listening to my manic grandfather talking about shooting Yankees, which he hadn't done, but he would like go into like this like delusion. And my dad is a Yankee from Boston, <laughs> like a preppy from Boston. <laughs> and I'm in San Diego in like a Filipino neighborhood. And I just remember being like, okay, this is interesting. This is a very interesting, (laughs) this is an interesting identity to have. Like (laughs) I'm living out two wars, the civil war and world war two. Like, like, cause my grandmother survived world war two in the Philippines. And like, we grew up listening to those stories. So like for me being like an American is all these identities. Mm. And and it's, it's like, I, so I was thinking about that, yesterday looking at my album cover because we just got like our some of our like vinyl test pressings in i'm like i think that the album cover kind of you know catches uh uh it definitely uh, sums up my weird crossroads of identities so right uh, which right, i'm right. very proud of all of them but it's also just like which code i have to code switch constantly so yeah well and and, and i think you 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 on your on your instagram profile you quote hunter thompson yeah and saying, one of my favorites what, yeah. is the, what is the quote uh when the going gets weird the weird go- turn pro right right exactly. he's my favorite <laughs> <laughs> my cat is named after him really, really? yeah gonzo oh yeah. my god that's fantastic <laughs> what and i mean i think that that's in, in like if nothing else like that's sort of where identity is now is that it's like it's like well all things are kind of weird like how do we how do we own the weird yeah and you have to or else you're gonna you're gonna end up giving yourself a nervous breakdown and I can tell you that for fact because that's what happened to me like Mm. I I had I, I I tried to like cherry pick my identities at one point years ago like when I was still like coming out of the closet and stuff it makes you it 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 will exacerbate any mental health issues you have and it will send you in a spiral and it's like honestly you just have to own all of it be like all right I guess this is who I am whoever you are you know I whoever you are like just like own it like trying to cherry pick it is probably really bad for your brain <laughs> yeah no it is i mean i had i had one of those really good nervous breakdowns when i was like s- 17 oh god <laughs> and i remember going to therapy it was the first time i went to therapy mm-hmm. i found a therapist talk and i was like uh i was like yeah it was like it was like i used to put everything in like a filing cabinet in mm-hmm. my head and then it exploded mm-hmm. and she's like oh honey yeah you yeah. had a nervous breakdown yeah yeah, yeah. it happens it's not manageable no <laughs> you won't work <laughs> it doesn't work and it's like like honestly learning to grieve mm. which has helped me um, as morbid as this sounds, like helped me deal with so much other stuff in my life. It's cause you can't like death is the biggest one and you can't, you can't like, you just have to grieve. Like otherwise you're going to, you know, go through like multiple nervous breakdowns. Right. And so for me, it was just like, okay, I have to do this. I can't escape it. It's like the angel of death is always there. So you mm-hmm. just have to do it. And, um, I, it has made me so accepting of myself and I used to not be at all. I used to like hide so much, so much. And I've just gotten to the point where I'm like, I don't, I don't care anymore. It's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, I would just, I always just want people to get more free if they can just like get more free. And I know how hard it is. Cause like I've was the most unfree person at one point. 
And so hopefully by the time I'm that 99-year-old bohemian lady in a loft in Manhattan, I'm very free, you know. I'll probably be a nudist by then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm stoked for you. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for catching up with me. Oh, absolutely. This has been fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that's it. Natural Demystified, again, is brought to you by Knack Factory, and we own this town. It is made, like literally made, by Jesse LaFontaine, who takes all of the things that I record and then send his way, and he makes them into an episode, and it's very much appreciated. Thank you, Jesse LaFontaine, for all things sound and post-production. Listen uh, next week. It's going to be a good one. It's all always going to be a good one, but, you know, next week especially. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Take care. Just trying to get it together, it seems. Takes all of the energy I need to succeed. Spent six whole months waking up in strange beds. Trying to outrun the call, finding out that she's dead. Won't you come pick me up? Forget the years that I've spent drunk. Take me home. Take me.